Welcome back to Trending Education. Dan Strafford, Michael Palmer, Brandon Jones along with you. And on today's episode, we have a guest, a very welcome guest, Jeannie Allen, the founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. Jeannie, how are you on uh, this Monday morning as we record? I'm great. Thank you, Dan. And Jeannie, can you do us a favor and maybe give us a little bit of background uh, for yourself and on the Center of Education Reform? Sure. So the Center for Education Reform, uh, also known as CER, uh, is the nation's leading advocate and authority for education opportunity and innovation uh, and uh, a, a great supporter of all transformational changes in teaching and learning. We've been around since 1993. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary this past October. And we're focused on a myriad of issues from the national to the local level. That's great. And if I can just uh, jump in here, Jeannie, it's Brandon. Um, nice to uh, get to speak with you this morning. Um, you, you said you focused on a, a myriad of issues. I wonder, how, how do you choose those issues? What, what's, um, what, uh, how do you choose, of all the things you could focus on, how do you choose what to focus on? Yeah, it's very difficult, Brandon. It's a great question. Uh, we want to do, uh, we want to put our credibility, contacts, and leverage to service uh, for students, families, and educators. And so what we tend to do is if it is an opportunity or a policy or an idea that drives more power into the hands of those three people, parents, teachers, and students, uh, if it helps raise and elevate um, the degree to which those students are likely to get an exceptional education, uh, and if it allows for a greater equity um, across lines, then we tend to support it. So for example, and try to advocate for it. So, and if we think we can do it, right? If we think we actually have the expertise or what we do a lot of is say, we really love this idea. We know people working in California on this issue or we know another national group that does it. And so we tend to be both advocates and analysts and leaders, but we also are brokers um, in the sort of education ecosystem. So across the states um, and increasingly globally, we work with about a million people who uh, will take, disseminate, contact, read, leverage what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And just as a follow-on question, I, I heard you say, um, I guess all of these are, are covered, but you, is your focus, would you say it's most on the local or state or national, I guess increasingly global, but where, where is your focus most uh, on, what, on which of those levels? So national with the intention that everything we talk about nationally or do nationally can actually um, infiltrate and have an impact on the state. So state, national and state. Um, because, of course, in education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, frankly, um, that the lion's share of work, effort, need, uh, desire is at that state level. Got it. Uh, Mike Palmer here. Uh, I'd be curious, you know, we're a, we're a trend-spotting education show, and uh, you've been in the business since 1993. So I imagine you've seen uh, some trends come and go. Um, what what's new what's emerging now what have you seen in the last say five or so years uh particularly maybe the last two or three years uh are there are there broader trends that uh that you and folks at the center for educational reform uh are are noticing like what's what's top of mind we like to say zeitgeist at least 
once per show. So, uh, so I, there, I just accomplished at uh, the very least once. Yeah, per show. yeah. It may it may also come back to us, but uh, but what's uh, what's emerging now? Where 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 are things heading? You think in the next few years? What's what's got your imagination? What is really exciting as well as challenging is the increasing um, uh, embrace and involvement schools have from K through career with this concept of personalized learning. Mm -hmm. Personalized learning, student-centered learning, uh, more experiential, providing student agency, all of these terms tend to refer to the notion that in today's day and age, maybe differently than in previous generations, both because of what we know about the brain, what we know about learning science, what technology has been able to provide us in terms of an eye toward what works in real time. Mm -hmm. We recognize that students actually learn at vastly different paces in vastly different ways. And so rather than confine them to a system or a school or a classroom or learning environment, that looks exactly like it did back in like 1985, 1885. Mm -hmm. We should give them the ability to attend schools that craft an education most tailored to their needs or craft their own education. That doesn't mean kids don't learn math and reading and history and civics, although they're still not learning any of that stuff to the extent we need. But it does mean that the approaches can help them accelerate their pace, stop where they need to stop and develop expertise or competency, which is the other big buzz category, your zeitgeist um, mm -hmm. for the area. So competency through personalized learning approaches, student-centered learning and uh, uses of technology in vastly new ways. Interesting, yeah, because like, we just covered uh, the a bit of the backlash against uh, summit learning in Kansas, which was covered on uh, in the New York Times, and, and we spent a, a recent show go going into depth on that. What was interesting about that, just sort of as a follow-up, is, you know, when you're talking about reaching educators, parents, and students, frequently the parents and the educators are not as connected to the rollout of the personalized learning, and that can cause some backlash. So, like, how do you guys engage with all three of those parties around a topic like personalized learning? So thank you for asking that question because while I told you what it is that we do and focus on, the how is what's the most exciting part. We really believe and we think we're unique in the, in the field of national groups that are working on these issues that, that the local folks, the grassroots are key. Mm -hmm. uh, and so while in the past we have indeed rallied people and brought, th you brought them in buses to state capitals or gotten them together um, on their own home turf to talk about stuff, this is a little different because you got in McPherson, Kansas, which is where that took place, that yep. article you're talking about, which is in the middle of the world. It's really hard to get there. It's hard to rally people. There's not a target because it's actually the local community that adopted and that parents and teachers misperceived was forced on them, this new approach. So it's not unlike any other issue where there's been a huge backlash. No one took the time to actually first identify what they know about school. So it actually turns out, and we've learned this a lot through our work on charter schools and other uh, changes in governance structures, which people tend to get you know, all hot and bothered about because it's different. But most people think school should be the way it was when they were young, when they were in school. And then they read stuff about technology. Look, I was the biggest Luddite in the world. I locked all of my kids' computers. 
I was like, oh, you get this two hour block at night. I mean, it was kind of, it was kind of obscene how bad I was. Um, not because I didn't want them to be on technology. I, I wanted them to use their quote unquote time wisely. And this was before we had the kind of products and services we have now, but I get what it's like to fear technology. But what we didn't do is sit down and say, technology is the tool, a pencil's a tool, a computer's a tool, and here's what you're not getting now, your teachers and schools in real time, you know, Ms. Smith, cannot measure and judge whether or not Abigail or Juan can make it quickly or as readily through the pro program as they need to. Therefore, this technology and this program allows us to personalize to our darling little Abigail's needs um, what it is that, that she needs. And we didn't do that. We just went in and um, we assumed a lot, not we, but the people who did it. And frankly, we don't teach parents about education. They, they might, parents wake up in the morning, they send their kids out the door to the school they were assigned. There's no shopping necessary, which mm -hmm. we actually are not happy about. We think there should be shopping. Uh, if choice does nothing else, it, it makes, it pulls you into an, to a deliberative effort that you might not normally be. So we didn't ask people, we didn't tell them, we didn't educate them. We didn't invite them to have the conversation that we have the luxury of having at the national level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to talk about choice too, because choice opens up questions around access and equity, which, uh, which you were also describing as one of the pillars of, uh, of your, your organization. So can you talk a little bit about that too? Like there is a, there's an inherent tension there, right? Where choice, like, if people know they can choose and if parents have the resources available to themselves to be able to shop around, um, there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there, but frequently the, the access gap is just understanding how as a parent I can sort of engage and make some of these choices. Cause I think frequently parent, particularly underserved parents, I think lots of times feel like they're just trying to, trying to stay afloat, trying to get their kid out the door in the morning, and they may not understand that there is more, uh, more options are available out there. I couldn't agree more. And where choice is actually a great leverage point and um, a foundation for all the different kinds of approaches to school that we know now exist is it allows communities and parents and students themselves to decide what kind of environment they want to be in, right? I mean, there are some of my kids that really belong sitting in a old-fashioned classroom with 30 kids looking right at the teacher and being held accountable. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple of other ones that learn more completely independently. McPherson, Kansas, like so many communities, is relatively rural. It happens to be in a state where there are no additional choices other than the school to which you're assigned, mm. unless you can afford a private school in a rural area that's not even there. That's a mess, mm -hmm. right? So does that mean that we believe that actually all parents and students in McPherson learn the same way, act the same way, drive the same car, right? So their mis fundamental mistake is, and, and this is where we sometimes do um, knock heads with even our colleagues whose programs and services we agree with, like personalized learning, because the reality is you should have lots of different offerings mm -hmm. in a town like that, small or large, so that once it's provided, you can say, you know what, I think that works for Juan, but I don't think it works for Abigail. So I'm going to go down here to the back to basic school, mm -hmm. 
where there's a little bit more, you know, direct instruction, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea of choice really works best when there are a multiplicity of different offerings across the sector and traditional school districts can create them and be innovative. They could go through charter-like schools, which are public schools open by choice accountable for results, but not part of the district. It could be private scholarship hybrids. It could be online learning. Mm -hmm. It could be a combination. There are some communities and schools where kids in high school are actually creating their own learning plans. They have two years in high school. They might take courses at a community or junior college and they might do online and then they get a bachelor's or an AA and a high school diploma at the same time. This is the kind of stuff that we need to be driving everyone toward. There's zero reason in this day and age with all that we have to offer that we can't make education work for every individual learner. Yeah, just building on the, the conversation around choice. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to ask a question that you can, you can choose to punt if you'd like. But uh, just on the, the, the conversation around choice, there are two sides to this conversation. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm, I may have drowned out uh, Jeannie's response. She said, no. So, um, uh, and uh, full disclosure, as the, the son of a superintendent, I've heard from, uh, from my father the, uh, the other side of this. Um, I, I know what side CER stands, uh, stands on. Um, and I think the conversation is nuanced. Uh, I, I wonder, here's the question, which you can punt. Is there an argument on the other side that you find to be the most compelling? Like when, you, when you're having to make the case for school choice, there are some uh, arguments to the contrary that are probably pretty easily dismissed. Are there, are, is there one that's, that's the most compelling on the other side, just to paint both sides of this, of this discussion? So... I think so. I mean, here's, here's what I'd say to your dad, and I've said to many, many superintendents, um, and I was talking to a number of people in the media recently when LA, Los Angeles Unified School District was challenged by that big strike, as so many are these days. And the reporter was saying, well, so what do you think about what the union's doing? And what do you think about what the district offered them? And I said, you know, this is a completely wrong conversation to have. Districts were created at a particular point in time to do a particular set of tasks that have now been so completely overwrought by every conceivable kind of service and demand on them. So we can't help but have to keep them in sort of the centralized box and then we say to them, okay, here's this whole union labor thing. You go figure it out, even if it means you're gonna bankrupt your district. So we've removed the ability of superintendents to actually have the impact they once had. We have made their job more difficult. We have demanded that systems do things that no one in their right mind ever believed they would have to do over 10, 15, 500,000 students. Um, and so I think it's a lose-lose it's a until we get to the point where money follows kids and that superintendent or that centralized district or whatever takes that money in and says, this is the things I want to do at this school, this school, and this school. I think there's absolutely a role for a new kind of system and a new kind of superintendent that a lot of superintendents agree with. Where I agree with them actually, where their argument is very plausible, very defensible against choices, you've given me no authority to make the kind of changes. You're saying, go ahead and let this charter school be open. They can do science and technology and real-time assessment and give kids a playbook. And, um, and they can spend money at the local level and they don't have this pesky union to deal with. What about me? And we say, yes, you're absolutely right. You shouldn't have, 
you shouldn't have a milk contract that was signed for three years you can't get out of. You shouldn't have to go by Davis-Bacon laws so that per square foot it costs you $200 to build a school, where it costs a charter school $30 per square foot, right? You shouldn't have to buy into this pension if you don't want to. The problem is, I have to admit, when we've offered that to a lot of school districts or school district leaders, their associations say, yeah, that's really easy for you to say. But there are these reasons we have these laws and these regulations. So every time you offer a district a waiver, they don't take it, except if it's like, how big is the bathroom? They don't take it on, on other things. So that's why so many superintendents and educators go and start their own schools. And I think there's got to be a shift and there's got to be superintendents that help the public understand how education is structured. Because most people simply don't understand how it works. Yeah, it does seem, uh, thank you for that answer and thanks for, for not punting. I appreciate how you taking that uh, head on. Um, it does seem, I'm, I'm sort of yes ending your, your answer there. If there's a system issue, I don't mean like a district, I mean like a, the system of education issue, it could be that uh, an outfit like CER and traditional school districts could partner together to try to solve some of those system issues that then makes it not an, an us them, but uh, you know, a, an us together. That that may be sort of Pollyanna-ish and and rose-colored lenses, et cetera. But I, it it does it does seem like some of the some of the issues are are bigger than any district considering how to figure out a charter school or school choice in their district. There are there are ways of of how funds get allocated, how accountability is set. The, the regs, et cetera, and, and maybe it, sound, it sounds like you are offering to partner with, uh, with those, you know, those principals, the superintendents, the districts, that may be a, a path forward. I put out a publication, I put out a speech, became a publication in 2016 that was called um, Movement at Risk, and it was a mandate for um, all of us to say, we need to be working with people at every single sector. And innovation um, is not uh, limited to one place. And that there were a lot of leaders and people in traditional school districts and schools that wanted to make a change. We had to give them that opportunity. We brought a public school superintendent, a charter school superintendent, and a private school leader to Capitol Hill to talk about personalized learning a couple of months ago, because they're all doing it, to show that there is this opportunity. Um, Jeff Riley, who's now, I think, the Commissioner of Education in Massachusetts, was the head of the Lawrence School District. It was a very, very difficult, troubled district. He was given some authority to convert some schools. He partnered with the charter to actually create some public programs, some programs in the public district with the public charter. Um, he did a lot of things and shared a lot, but yeah, it has to start with leadership. And sometimes there's someone on the school board who's innovative and sometimes it's the superintendent and oftentimes they don't connect. So just uh, building a little bit more on the personalized learning uh, topic, which is, which is really interesting on a number of levels. Um, I heard, uh, and I still need to figure out who to credit, who was talking about, rather than talking about it as personalization, talk about it as humanization. Uh, so that ultimately it's hum personalization needs to be human-centered uh, and then increasingly we are finding that the future of work is more about diverse groups getting together in sort of human connection to solve problems. Um, can you talk about, uh, talk a little bit about some of the challenges of personalization where like, uh, 
the again sort of borrowing Brandon's technique because I thought it was a good one. Um, you know, like some of the critiques of personalization are it's producing zombie kids or my kids just sitting looking at a screen all day. Um, what when it's done well? Because you have a good window into the whole uh, the whole of our our country really around how we're trying to do this sort of experimental work. When personalization is done well, how does it uh, really engage the whole student? Like how is it? How does it tap into social and emotional learning? Some of the other trends that that we're also tracking uh, when you're when you're delivering that through like a personalized program that is really tailoring to Abigail and Juan. How do how do you build structures that make sure Abigail and Juan know how to work together and know how to work with, with other folks who may be getting very different uh, personalization? With a lot of things, I have to say that it still largely depends on the teacher. Mm -hmm. um, we Technology should not replace a teacher. It should make her more effective. And when an educator is engaged, whether it's on ground or even online mm -hmm. with where their students are and help them achieve. You don't want a student sitting in front of their iPad or their book or whatever they call it these days and going through some open educational resource they found to try to understand, I don't know, American Revolution, um, some level of American Revolution and sitting there and not being engaged. You want mm -hmm. them to be able to ask questions, not just through their program, program, but to say, hey, Ms. Smith, can you come on over here? I'm trying to understand this. You want them to be able to collaborate next to one another. So when I've seen it done right, it's, I've also seen sort of a, a level of this in what they call blended learning, which is, again, it's like somewhat online, somewhat on ground. When it's done right, there's still constant engagement. But by providing the technology, the teacher should be able to move around among students more frequently Mm -hmm. and not stay on one topic and one um, level of the topic. Or you might have two people who are moving around and you might have students who are connecting with each other. And it may be that you're able to say, we're only doing 20 minutes on this because it looks like what we learned yesterday in math didn't go over well, we're gonna do 40 minutes on that. So I think it's a, a smart integration and a constant reiteration of teacher, technology and students and when it's done really poorly, I mean, there are a lot of definitions and misdefinitions of this stuff, just like, like I'll never forget when the phonics whole language debate was going on. And finally, people were like, okay, balanced literacy, maybe not a good idea. We don't really know what that means. Everyone was doing balanced literacy, which basically meant nothing. And they finally said, here's what kids need. They need to know phonemes. They need to know the separate language parts in order to be able to learn to read. And the minute they said that, every publisher in America slapped phonics on the front of their English book, even though they didn't change much of it. Right, right. Personalized learning is like that now. Everyone's saying it's personalized. Oh, I do personalized learning. No, Flash, you don't do personalized learning. You're doing something with technology. Hmm. So is it, in fact, truly allowing a student to achieve competency in a lesson, in a problem, one problem, or in the overall course in real time, then it is personalized, student-centered, customized, humanized. But it not if, like I went to a classroom once that said they were doing personalized learning and there was a girl sitting there looking at her pad, iPad. I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm waiting until the teacher tells me I can move forward. I was like, nope, kind of, <laughs> you know, negates the whole idea of competency. 
talking with uh, Jeannie Allen, CEO, founder of the Center for Education Reform. Uh, Jeannie, you may mention of, uh, you know, harkening back to the 1885 and how the classroom hasn't changed much. Uh, we've seen and we've talked about a lot here about the changing role of the teacher, uh, how they've had to become so much more responsible for the whole student. Uh, we've talked about the whole teacher movement, making sure uh, they are taken care of uh, both uh, physically and mentally and emotionally themselves. What have you seen in your time from 1993 to today uh, in the change of the way teachers are thought about and what their responsibilities are and how does CER uh, try to uh, incorporate that into their thought process? Well, I think one of, the, one of the biggest positives I've seen that's really exciting is how many teachers are actually going out of their way to find their own content or to find content that supplements, not supplants what's happening in the classroom. Um, I mean, there are, people talk about, and not everyone knows what it means, but open education resources, websites, whatever. I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Common Lit, and they started by creating lesson plans for teachers in literature that were mapped to different standards. Now they're doing social studies. And there are millions of teachers pulling stuff down on a daily basis. We do a program on civics and history in the district. There are tons of teachers that are like, where, where do I get stuff? How do I, how do I amplify what we're doing here? And so the fact that they go fishing, if you will, or go hunting and pecking for stuff to supplement is a really, really good thing. I don't know that they are rewarded or valued for how much they're actually changing their classroom on a regular basis or creating an opportunity for students to learn more outside of what's in front of them. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of standards and accountability pre-NCLB, post-NCLB, but it made people's lives so much more difficult by at least the perception was all I have to do is teach to a test. Mm -hmm. And so that really tied their hands and now they're coming back, like they're coming back. And so I think that's important. I think the other thing is their jobs are in fact changing in many, many ways, but they're not being educated in different ways at schools of education. Mm -hmm. And so just the way we got to think about students being different and giving them more agency, so too do we have to say to teachers, when you actually go to get educated and trained for how to teach kids, we have to complete, completely change the way that happens so that that's more customized and focused on what they're looking to do. That's great. And, and building on that question, um, you, just, uh, you mentioned having celebrated the 25th anniversary of CER. Congrats. That's a big milestone. What's, uh, what's in the next 25 years? So what are you, what are you looking forward to do from you know, your leadership position, uh, whether you as the CEO or just the leadership position that CER has in the space? Uh, what's, uh, what's up next? Well, I'll answer it. Thank you for asking. I'll answer it in two ways. I mean, programmatically, we'd like to see the kind of, of education ecosystem that I'm describing that is unsiloed, that allows a sixth grader to zoom towards 10th grade, whatever that means. Again, why do we have sixth, eighth, and 10th grade? By the way, why do we have biology, chemistry, and physics in that order? Alphabet, which most people don't know, <laughs> right? Okay. So, so most of the reasons we do what we do are pretty much as silly as we teach certain things because of the alphabet, when physics really should come first mm -hmm. because it's, it's a foundation for what you learn later in science and math. Um, we want people to think that way. We want schools to have wide berth and districts to have wide berth to do what they need to do. And the state and feds and even local school boards say, you know what, tell us how you did with that and let us come evaluate. And then let's work with you to try it again if it's not working rather than do it one way top down. And I think what we've learned in higher ed and in the career space actually is incredibly exciting because they're doing exactly that. 
They are tailoring what they need to the needs of students because students who enter higher ed or post-secondary credentials are no longer 18 looking for four years of partying. They're very, very different people. We want to see that different um, programmatically. I want to see rural schools completely change sort of this new way of doing things. Um, I want to see us a lot more engaged with um, people across the globe. I want to be able to wake up in the morning and know that there's a student in DC who can access maybe some rocket scientist in the middle of Singapore, rather than have to worry about whether we got the rocket scientist in Washington, DC. Hmm. Uh, so lots more innovation, flexibility, and opportunity for students and teachers to carve their own path to become truly exceptional. Jeannie Allen, CEO and founder of CER. Uh, best place to find more information, edreform.com? Edreform.com. And uh, you can find more information there. Find Jeannie as well, some of her writings and other work that they have ongoing. Thanks so much for the time here on Trending in Education. Thank you.